Hello, my name is Alan Mulhern. This is the Quest series, and this is the Young mini-series within it, where we consider the relationship of analytical psychology to Gnosticism. If you recall from the previous podcasts, we have covered the early period of Jung's life, particularly his 1913-17 to 17 confrontation with the unconscious, followed by his period of study in the 1920s, and his encounter with alchemy in his midlife and later life periods. If we were to forward from that 1913-17 period, three or four decades in Jung's life, we will find that he never forgot Gnosticism, the language, guide and spirit of his descent and confrontation with the unconscious. In Volume 9, Part 2 of his collected works, entitled Aeon, which was published in 1951, he writes a chapter called Gnostic Symbols of the Self. Even though there is still a great lack of original Gnostic texts for him to study, he moves effortlessly between the alchemical and Gnostic literature, now sure of his ground and deftly interpreting the Gnostic symbols. This is what the understanding of alchemy allowed him to do. For Jung, alchemy continued the Gnostic traditions, and many of the same themes of the Gnostics appeared in the alchemical treatises and images. Since the European medieval alchemists would have had scarcely any literature on the Gnostics, far less than Jung, we can only assume that both traditions touch very deeply and authentically the transpersonal components of the deep psyche. For example, the struggle between light and darkness, the imprisonment of spirit in matter, the transcendent source of the soul, the movement towards transformation and greater wholeness. In other words, they are rooted in the archetypal nature of the psyche and its symbols of transformation. The Gnostic symbols of the self along with another hefty tome, The Answer to Job, feel at times to be the nuclear physics of archetypal psychology. In the Gnostic symbols of the self, one frequently feels exhausted as one is taken through a relentless, at times enlightening, at times overwhelming, dense account of Gnostic, alchemical and Christian symbols, as well as general mystical, stoic and Egyptian references, which pour from Jung's mind as if from a vast reservoir. Even though I have studied this material for decades, there is scarcely a page when I do not feel defeated at some point. Frequently the language and symbols are so abstruse and the interpretations so dense yet brilliant that one has to put down the book so as to clear the mind, with a strong temptation not to pick it up again until another occasion, some way down the line. So, if I find it difficult... How much more so will many of you who are coming to it for the first time? So I'm going to try to make it easier. I didn't say easy. Remember that the Gnostics, like the Christians, or those in any age prior to our own, had no concept for the human psyche. No psychology as an independent discipline. It took an absolute genius like Shakespeare to think in such a modern way. Gnostics and Christians thought in terms of religion, spirituality and mythology. When Jung says that the Gnostics, like the alchemists, prefigured analytical psychology of the 20th century, this is because he could, at this point, interpret and transpose their abstruse mythological symbolisms 
into the concepts of his psychology. However, the overlap is partial. Not all of Jungian psychology is prefigured. The similarities are chiefly in the transpersonal or spiritual aspects of Jungian psychology that find their echo in the Gnostic literature. It is this aspect of his psychology, the transpersonal, that increasingly grips Jung as he gets older. I shall now outline some key Gnostic ideas and refer to concepts of analytical psychology, which Jung argued were comparable. His text, Gnostic Symbols of the Self, will be useful for this purpose. Jung argues that the Gnostics had a concept of the unconscious. Again, not psychological, but mythological. A letter of Valentinus, a famous Gnostic theologian of the second century of the Common Era, says, quote, that in the beginning, everything is in the state of unconsciousness, unquote, which is described as a state of non-differentiation, without consciousness and substance, neither masculine or feminine. Within this state is the Gnostic concept of the Ennoia, which Jung suggests is the potential for consciousness. That the Gnostics had an equivalent concept to the collective unconscious. Simon Margus preached of a great and boundless power that had been hidden and concealed, yet placed within mankind, which he called the universal root. That this universal root could be accessed by imaging an art, as Simon Margus suggested. This is paralleled in Jungian psychology by active imagination, sound play, and any creative, especially artistic activity, that accesses the deep psyche. Certain Gnostics, for example the Valentinians, were highly inclined to interpret their mythological material as symbolic rather than literal. For example, instead of treating Christ's resurrection as a literal event, as the Christians were increasingly doing, they would think of it symbolically. What does this rebirth mean as an inner event? This is exactly parallel to the operation of depth psychology in the modern era, which interprets most things symbolically, that is, as representations of the psyche. Next comparison between analytical psychology and Gnosticism. That the Gnostic idea that the supposed Judaic god of this world, Yahweh, was not the supreme god at all. This is parallel to the concept in analytical psychology that the ego becomes aware of and is replaced by the self in the individuation process. This downgrading of the demiurge, Yahweh, who is ignorant of a higher god, is, Jung suggests, akin to displacing the ego's dominance with the recognition of the self. For Jung, the movement to the self-pole is the object of psychotherapy. The self would be the unknown god in the pleroma. This self, in Jungian psychology, is the central archetype of order, an internal guidance system, so to speak, orchestrating the development of personality, as opposed to the Freudian concept, where the self indicates self-image or identity. That the original man was caught in matter, a fundamental Gnostic myth. This is referred to as the indivisible point or monad, which is, again, the son of man. This, in analytical psychology, suggests Jung, is a symbol of a transpersonal consciousness, or centre deep in the unconscious, a symbol of wholeness, 
psychic wholeness is symbolised by the god image. Similarly, the Sethians, who are a Gnostic group, hold that a ray of light from above is mingled with the darkness of the waters below. There are many similar references in the Gnostic literature, using the dramatic imagery of the light mixed with darkness, of a mixing process. For example, how sparks or scintillae are dispersed in matter and have to be gathered in again, which is the process of salvation. Jung continually refers to such images in his Gnostic and alchemical comparisons, as well as his commentaries on Taoism. This is interpreted at times as the light of consciousness activating the transformational potential in the unconscious. At other times it is the impact of the higher self on the darkness of the psyche, trapped in the material world. This composition and mixture, as it is referred to in the Gnostic texts, becomes separated at death or in mystic experience, allowing the spark to return to the Logos, quote, faster than iron to the magnet, unquote. Translated into analytical psychology, this is the activation of the dynamic process of healing and integration in the unconscious under the transformative impact of consciousness and the light of the higher self. Similarly, Simon Margus, alias Philemon, Young's spirit guru, teaches there is a small spark which increases in power and is boundless and immutable. The images of a magnet caught Jung's attention in the Gnostic literature. Also, he quotes Plotinus, a 3rd century AD mystic philosopher who actually opposed the Gnostics. Plotinus gives an idea of the soul that moves around a centre from which it originates. In the Gnostic literature, many other images such as the mustard seed, the pearl of great price, the serpent, the fish, the noose are symbols of wholeness being integrated into the human psyche, which leads to the growth of the personality and development of consciousness. The magnet is the self, or spiritual essence, and the iron particles are this psychic material being irresistibly drawn to it in the individuation process. This magnetic process revolutionises the ego pole of the psyche by recognising another centre outside of itself. Next comparison between analytical psychology and Gnosticism. That the Gnostic idea of the lost Sophia, immersed in matter, and whom the Messiah redeems, was equivalent to the neglected feminine principle of modern times. Jungian psychology places great importance on the lost feminine principle, and its reincorporation into the modern psyche. The Gnostics were very similar in this respect. That the hermaphroditic references in the Gnostic literature, for example, that Christ was male and female, were important ideas for analytical psychology, since the hermaphrodite is a symbol of wholeness. The same applies to sexual references with respect to Christ and Mary Madeline that we find in the Gnostic literature. The Gnostics, like analytical psychology, pointed to a re-evaluation of the male and female divide. In analytical psychology, this is paralleled by the integration of contra-gender characteristics, animus and animal, in the individuation process. The Gnostics increasingly distinguished themselves from Christians in that they emphasised 
inner contemplative gnosis, knowing, rather than faith. Great importance is placed on revelation. The transpersonal path of analytical psychology is also very much one of gnosis and an intense search for the soul, which is a mystical journey and not simply following a set of rules or an act of faith. With respect to the modern European situation in the mid-20th century, Young writes in The Spiritual Problem of Modern Man, quote, Our age wants to experience the psyche for itself, knowledge instead of faith, unquote. The Gnostics have a concept of a source of light in the pleroma. This light is scattered and deep in the human race and has a transcendent source. This would be paralleled by a belief in the self in analytical psychology, a primordial centre of meaning and order, which carries the God image within us. The Gnostics often talk of dualism, dark and light, for example, sometimes a multiplicity of gods, archons, yet a striving for oneness to the ultimate unknown God in the Pleroma, to which the light will return after the great gathering in. Throughout Jung's collected works, and in analytical psychology in general, there are many references to a dualism or multiplicity that is seeking unity, and this refers to the individuation process. Jung's first mandala, incidentally, was spontaneously drawn in 1916, at the time of writing of the Sermons of the Dead. It resembles the famous Gnostic representation of the archonic prisons, the spheres surrounding the earth and blocking the soul as it attempts, in death or mystical experience, to reach the pleroma. The first mandala has at its centre Homo, mankind, within whom is spirit, a bird image, instincts, snake image, and the letter A, presumably signifying Abraxas, the creator of the world. However, even deeper in the microcosm lies the magnetic core, the Anthropos, which is the buried or hidden wholeness that lies within us. If you wish to see this mandala, you may type in the words Young's first mandala into a search engine and see an early unconscious image brought into consciousness, which proves so important to its archetype of the self. Christianity increasingly emphasised sin, while the Gnostics thought of ignorance, that is, lack of gnosis, as the default human position. For the Christians, the avoidance of sin was crucial. For the Gnostics, it was gnosis, the revelatory experience that was the key. Jung very much favoured the Gnostic search for inner knowledge and saw the dominance of the ego and rationalistic thought as the great delusion or ignorance that holds us trapped and imprisoned in a lower state. It should be noted that there are certain aspects of Gnosticism that do not find resonance in Jungian psychology. The most important of these is a frequent Gnostic pessimism, their acosmic attitude that is against the cosmos, that not only the world but the whole cosmos was evil, in the hands of the Archons, that even sexuality and reproduction should be renounced, since it was a means of perpetuating delusion and ignorance and the reign of the lower gods. Scarcely has any religion held such an anti-life position. 
Young's feeling in this respect was closer to the classic Judaic and Christian position that the world is a good creation of a benevolent God and that evil is to be located in human beings. I dread to think actually what would have happened if Constantine in the 4th century had chosen the Gnostics to be the religion of the empire. By way of contrast, you may remember, if you have followed this series, that episode 8 of season 2, entitled Young, Visions, Journey of the Soul, in which, in recovery from a near-death experience, he explained that during the day he was depressed and could not rid himself of the impression that this life is a segment of existence, which is enacted in a three-dimensional box-like universe, especially set up for it. This is a very Gnostic feeling, that somehow our whole existence is a psychological and spiritual prison in which we are encased. What unites Jung and the Gnostics is their intense determination to break through this, to pass through the Archons, so to speak, with the special passwords, and reach the ultimate source of light to which our soul is in resonance. I should add that there are Jungian analysts who are not deeply connected to the transpersonal, but find enough meaning in Jungian psychology outside of its mystical and metaphysical side. This includes ideas such as complexes, the compensatory nature of the unconscious, an understanding of the various personality types, a human potential process which is understood in a non-mystical manner as in humanist psychology, a model of thinking, feeling, sensation and intuition, the axes of extroversion and introversion and many more core ideas of analytical psychology. Jung provided a rich basis for this psychology without reference to mystical and metaphysical traditions. Gnosticism does not really prefigure any of the above. However, the Gnostic traditions had a huge personal impact on Jung, and over time he was able to create a bridge from analytical psychology to an impressive range of their symbols. It is especially the transpersonal tendency within analytical psychology, and markedly within Jung himself, that finds these comparisons and transpositions meaningful and useful. I feel, and have often observed, that there are certain introverted spiritual types, like Jung himself, who are personally drawn to this mythological and mystical way of thinking, because of an intense need to address their wounded selves. They are like iron to the magnet, and are irresistibly drawn to the centre, in search of healing. The metaphysical words, phrases and ideas echo down through the millennia like the seed from the great sower, some of which falls on shallow soil, some of which is choked by weeds and some of which falls on fertile soil and multiplies. In the previous podcast I argued that in classical antiquity, that is in the ancient Greek and Roman world, some central aspects of the mystery religions were complementary to Gnosticism. I believe that Jung's creative confrontation with the unconscious between 1913 and 1917 is most usefully framed in this manner, which combines the descent and rebirth ritual of the mystery schools with a search for higher knowledge of the Gnostics. While this may not be part of normal psychotherapy, it is part of the mystical core of analytical psychology which in its turn has entered into our own times 
where these myths are dreamt on. Young put enormous determined research effort into the spiritual undercurrents of Gnosticism and alchemy, as well as ancient Chinese, Indian and Egyptian thought, in order to integrate them with the unique psychology he created for contemporary humanity. He did this research not only into ancient civilizations, but also into the peoples of other countries to which he travelled. One may think that modern psychology does not need this, that Jungian psychology can perfectly well stay on the upper levels of the sea of the psyche, so to speak, one ship among others. However, Jung knew he had to drop anchor into the historical depths, since he felt instinctively that what he was discovering was not just another interesting theory, but something that was archetypal in dimension, and therefore could be found in many cultures throughout history, and even lay in the historical unconscious, despite repression and persecution, just as Gnosticism lay buried in the sands beneath the Christian surface. This gives Jungian psychology an extraordinary depth, an anchor deep in the world's psyche. For example, there is no other psychological school that comes remotely near the interpretation of the world's mythologies, religions and fairy tales that has been provided by Jungian psychology. Or another example, humanist schools after 1945 promoted very useful ideas of self-actualization. But decades prior to this, Jung had anchored his theories of the self, big S, the inner motor of self-actualization, in his clinical practice, in his interpretation of the dream world, and in the world's spiritual traditions, showing that such ideas had always existed in one form or another. What they required was interpretation. And just one more example, Jung gave a different interpretation of dreams to the Freudian school, and this was to essentially include symbols of transformation and change and growth deep in the psyche, as it were built into its foundations, into the collective unconscious, as it expresses itself through the personal unconscious of the dreamer. Since these symbols of transformation are found throughout the world's religions and spiritual traditions. This means that the interpretation of dreams now can link in to the traditions of humanity. And this gives these interpretations, this way of thinking about the dream world, the unconscious, the deep psyche, an extraordinary depth. The anchoring of Jungian psychology in the depths of the psyche has given it a stability which means it will not be blown around by the winds of change and fashion. As I have stressed, it is not just another theory, something thought up by consciousness. It is as fascinating and as rich as the spiritual traditions it investigates, for the simple reason that, like them, it is rooted in the deep psyche, the unconscious. This combination of the mysteries, gnosis and analytical psychology offers a pathway of the soul for millions in the 21st century who find themselves spiritually adrift in crisis and in search for meaning. This is the core of what Jung was offering. It also helps explain why at the end of his life he felt so misunderstood. 
Jungian psychology is not meant to be just a school where another catechism is learnt, where a system of instruction is given and the model is passed on. It is the living path of the psyche as it seeks transformation and gnosis, that is, higher knowledge. In our next podcast, I shall relate a Manichaean myth that will bring alive the anguished world of spiritual alienation and imprisonment of the Gnostics and their intense desire for redemption from their fallen condition. You will hear of a terrible battle in the Pleroma as a result of which the forces of darkness prevail in the cosmos, of the defeat of primal man, the lost Sophia who became enamoured with matter and the living spirit who is the messenger sent to liberate humankind from its imprisonment. I hope you can join me.